The word of the Lord. Acts 16. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Well, good morning. Hey, I want to join in. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, moms, we, we love you. My mom, I... I just love that lady. I would never say that in public, though. You don't want someone to catch you on a, on a video and put it in the Internet, right? You be careful. Hey, uh, I really uh, appreciated uh, Nicholas' uh, pastoral prayer. If you don't know who Nicholas was, he was the guy that was here uh, praying uh, for about three minutes. And, and he, in his prayer, he pointed out to the fact that, you know, Mother's Day can be a beautiful day of celebration and, and, and rejoicing, but it can also be a, a very painful day, can it? It, it, it? You know, in many different levels, like, uh, you know, people who lost their mothers, mothers who lost their children, women who want to be mothers and they can't or they haven't been able to, and, and, and that feels like a loss. That causes grief. That causes us to lament. You know, what I, what I love about the gospel is that it gives us uh, quite a unique way to deal with those emotions, to deal with, with lamenting, to deal with groaning, to deal with mourning. It gives us a unique way. The gospel does not say that you don't get to suffer anymore. It doesn't say that, uh, that you don't groan anymore, that you don't mourn anymore. But it gives us a unique way to deal with that, as we will see uh, this morning. 
See, uh, Christianity, the book that we see in the book of Acts, that Christianity was born in a culture that was as resistant and as unsympathetic to its claim as our culture is today. But the case for the gospel, it was made with, with such a strength. It was made so compellingly that, that it appealed to people from such a wide variety of cultures, backgrounds, races, nationalities, generations. And one of the ways in which uh, the gospel uh, appealed to such a, a wide variety of people, as we will see this morning, is by the unique way that the gospel gives us uh, that the unique way that the gospel gives us to handle pain and suffering and to handle grief. You see, this morning we're going to see not one, but three stories that Luke chose very purposefully to show us how the gospel appeals to all people. Um, and hopefully, you know, we can, we can draw lessons from it. As we, too, seek to uh, further the gospel wherever we work, whatever we study, wherever we live, we, we live, there you go. Um, here in, in Boise, in the Treasure Valley. Um, but first, let me, let me show you where, uh, where we are in the book of Acts. Uh, Rod left us there in Lystra. And today, uh, uh, Silas and Paul uh, and Timothy, whom they picked up in Lystra, they continue their journey through the churches that they established in their first uh, missionary trip. And uh, now uh, verse 6 tells us that they went through to the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So, wanting to go to Asia, Paul would have wanted to go to Ephesus. Why? Because Ephesus was the biggest city in the province of Asia, and that was Paul's strategy. He would go to the big city centers from which the gospel could spread uh, to its surroundings. But the Holy Spirit said, nope, you're not going to Asia. So they continue up north. And when, when they got uh, to the region of, of Mysia right there, they said, well, we cannot go south. Let's try and go up north. So they tried to go up to Bithynia, but the Spirit again says no. It doesn't tell us, uh, clarify how. It says no. So they continue their, uh, their journey to uh, Troas, and it is in Troas that they received, that Paul receives the famous uh, uh, Macedonian vision of a man standing, asking them in the vision to come to Macedonia uh, to help. And uh, so after consulting and praying with, uh, with Paul, uh, Luke, because Luke joins here, uh, and, and Timothy, they decide to go all the way to uh, Macedonia, and they, they land in the city of Philippi. Now this is very significant to us. Why? Because this is the first time that we see in the Bible that the gospel is brought to Europe. This is modern-day uh, Europe. And uh, to, to them it wasn't. To them it was, they were just going from one Roman province to another Roman province of the same empire. Uh, but to us, this is, this is Europe, which is very significant to us because Europe would go on to become the, uh, the first continent that was predominantly uh, Christian. And until fairly recently, it was the main base for missionary outreach to the rest of the world. Now we're sending missionaries there, right? Like tomorrow. Uh, the, the galleons are leaving tomorrow, 6.30, to, go, to move to Czech Republic for long-term uh, missionary work. And hopefully, uh, my family and I, we, uh, we will move to Spain here in, in a few months in August uh, for a long-term missionary trip. So, but here is Philippi. This is the, the, the place, the city, where we find our three stories uh, this morning. Three 
stories that are incredibly different and yet uh, incredibly similar. How are they different? Well, let, let's take it in a one-by-one one, uh, case. Uh, let's start with Lydia, who's the, one that, that we, the first one that we see there. What do we know about Lydia? Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the, the, the gate to the riverside. They went outside the city where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So what does this tell us about Lydia? Well, first of all, she was an immigrant. How do we know? Because she's from Thyatira. Where is Thyatira? That's why, why I love maps. Chris, can I have that map again? See, there it is. They're here in Philippi, and Lydia is from here, Thyatira. Funny enough, it's in Asia, the very province from which the Holy Spirit kept Paul from going. He cannot go to Asia, but then he goes to Philippi, and the first person that he meets, it's from Asia. So uh, I'll let, I let you munch on that one on yourself later. The fact that, is that she, uh, the point I want to make is that she was, uh, she was an immigrant, and we also know, by these verses that we just read, that uh, she was a seller of purple goods. Which means that since uh, purple dyes were extremely expensive, uh, she was a retailer of fashion and uh, of luxury goods. Therefore, she was a businesswoman and she was filthy wealthy. She had a lot of money. And, and uh, we have reasons to believe that because out of the th- three stories that we see this morning, she is the only one who is referred to by her name, which points to the fact that she had certain social status. And given the fact that she was an immigrant, most likely she got that status by having tons of money. So she is an immigrant, she is wealthy, and she is religious. Uh, Paul found her uh, in a place where he was expecting to find Jews. And and this is another one of Paul's strategies. Wherever he goes, he looks for Jews. He looks for a synagogue. He went into Philippi. He didn't find a synagogue, which tells us that there were in Philippi less than 10 men who were a Jew. Why? Because that's all that you needed to have a synagogue. But there was no synagogue. You could have as many women, women as you wanted. That wouldn't make up for a synagogue. So uh, there's no synagogue. There's no men who are really a Jew. And they're not in the cities. He has to go outside the city, which tells us that Jews were not really liked in Philippi. Um, so he goes out uh, uh, to this uh, uh, place of prayer, and there she finds Lydia uh, uh, on a Sabbath day. And this tells us that she's religious. Paul describes her, the, uh, sorry, not Paul, Luke describes her as a worshiper of God. And that means that she was a Gentile who was reading the Hebrew Scriptures, and he was seeking to please the God of the, of the Old Testament. Um, she was religious. Now, how did the gospel uh, come to Lydia? Verse 14, second part of of verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. How did the gospel come to her? It came, the Lord used a rational discourse to get to Lydia, a rational discourse. And see, most likely, this is what would have happened. Uh, Paul goes to this place of prayer. He, he, uh, He finds all these women, and he sits down, and he asks them, uh, well, uh, tell me, what have you learned about the God of the Bible? And they would have said something like, you know, we know about Abraham, uh, uh, the promise that God made to Abraham. He promised him that through his offspring, he would bless all the nations in the world, to which Lydia said, great, because I'm part of all the nations of the world. 
Um, we also learn about Moses. Uh, and through Moses, God brought his great law, the Ten Commandments, a, a law that is beautiful, that is wonderful, but it, that is almost it's pretty impossible to fulfill. Yet God uh, also gave us, we learned, that he, he also gave us a sacrificial system. Why? So we could make amends for breaking the laws that the, we weren't able to live up to. You see, the, the wages of sin is death. So he, he allowed us uh, to have a sacrificial system so someone else could die for us. And what Paul must have said to them was something like this. Well, guess what? Jesus is the one in which the promise to Abraham is fulfilled. And the, woman, the women would have said, uh, how is that? How, how, how is the promise of Abraham fulfilled in Jesus? How, how does God bless me through Jesus? Well, because he is also the fulfillment of the, of the law of Moses. What does that mean? Well, it, it means that he, not only that, it means that he's the only righteous one. It means that he is the only human being who ever lived and who ever will live, who has been able to live an absolutely perfect righteous life. And the women will go like, well, good for him. I mean, we're, we're all trying to do that, but how does that bless me? Well, because being the only righteous and perfect one, he's also the unblemished lamb of God. He is the Passover lamb. He, he's the ultimate sacrifice. And he died on the cross for us. And through his sacrifice, he made amends for all the laws that we broke, for all the laws that we are breaking right now, and for all the laws that we will break. He paid for all of those, once and for all. No need for more uh, sacrifices. On the cross, he made amends for us. So when we believe in Jesus and accept his sacrifice for us, not only the curses that we deserve were transferred to him, but, but listen carefully because this is where the difference with the, with the uh, animal sacrifices lies. Not only that our curses were transferred to him, his blessings, his blessings were transferred to us. And so we are, we are uh, reconciled to God forever. That's how God blesses us through Jesus. Do you see how liberating that is? Jesus' sacrifice not, not, does not simply give us a clean slate and then send us back into probation. It's not like that, that, that God tells us something like, okay, I forgive you, okay? I'm going, to, I'm going to give you yet another chance. Now go try harder. Go. And see you tomorrow with another sacrifice. Well, no, there's no sacrifice anymore. But see, his death on the cross not only earns a clean slate for us, uh, he also earns our reward. He, ends, he, he earns our crown, our blessing. If he only earned a clean slate for us, that wouldn't be liberating at all. That, that would be uh, crushing. That would be oppressive. That would be uh, burdensome. Because at some point we would be like, you know what, okay, okay, God, you know what? Um, just forget about it. Forget about it. I mean, I know that you forgive 70 times 7, and I know that that means a whole lot more times than that. But at this point, it has become very clear to me 
that I'm just going to keep on sinning. I mean, uh, we, we, we're not going anywhere. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not really changing. And I simply cannot bear anymore going around wearing this mask, pretending that I'm righteous, pretending that I'm someone else. I just can't bear it anymore. If, if on the cross Jesus only earned a clean slate for us and then sent us back into probation, that would be a, a curse. See, what Paul went on to show Lydia is that the gospel does not produce religious people. See, uh, uh, Lydia was religious, but she needed the gospel. And religious people need the gospel as much as anybody else. Why? Because religious people are either terribly condescending and grumpy, or they feel terribly guilty all the time. The standard is too high. And I've met people who say, I tried Christianity and it only made me feel more guilty. Well, you, haven't, you, you didn't get the gospel. You haven't gotten the gospel yet. See, the religious people, if, they're, if they feel like they're ahead on living on up to the standard, they might say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than you. You know, and they are condescending and harsh on everybody else who is not at their own level. And if they are far from meeting the standard, they are burdened and they feel terribly guilty. It is burdensome because religious people still believe that they need to strive for acceptance, for God's acceptance. Religion says, I obey so I can be accepted. But the gospel says, I am accepted in Christ Jesus. And therefore... I obey. See, he won the crown for us. And therefore, God says, I am pleased with you. And when you experience the love of God like that, when you start realizing, just getting a glimpse of, of, of the, the magnitude with, with which God loves you, it changes your life. Obedience comes, starts coming very naturally. You, you don't become perfect right away, but obedience and, and righteousness and your transformation starts be, uh, coming very naturally. Look at uh, verse 15. And after she, Lydia, was baptized, and her household as well, it, um, scholars believe that she uh, was a widow, and uh, so she had her family and slaves and, and servants because she was rich. Uh, so when they, uh, they, they were, when they were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. See, after, after she comes to Christ, uh, Paul doesn't have to convince her and tell her, well, the first rule that you need to follow is that you need to give us, uh, you know, we, we need a place to stay. No, she immediately, when she catches the love of God through the gospel, she, what's mine is yours. All, everything is available for you. Obedience starts coming very naturally. And see, uh, us as Christians, sometimes... Uh, we, uh, we struggle obeying, right? I mean, it's, that's uh, uh, in the scripture that, that we, we're going to keep on sinning because we're sinners and that's why we need a savior. But we are not to lose faith. We are not to, to lose uh, hope. And, and oftentimes when we disobey, we, we, we go, we need to try harder, right? Read more of the Bible and all those things. And, and that's not uh, what the gospel compels you to do. See, obedience does not elicit intimacy. It is quite the contrary. Intimacy with God is what elicits obedience. 
So when we are struggling and we, we know that we're, doing, we're not uh, doing well, that we're not obeying, what we need to do is seek God and seek relationship with him and seek intimacy with him. Don't worry about obeying. That'll, be, that'll come naturally. See, the gospel for the religious. Lydia got it through a rational discourse. Now, let's look at the slave girl, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met, and this is another day, probably the, the, next week, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and uh, brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. Now, how is this slave girl different from Lydia? Well, uh, she's different uh, almost in every possible way. Uh, the only thing that they have in common is that they're both female. But other than that, um, uh, first of all, uh, Lydia is a full-grown woman. And the slave girl is, well, she's a girl. She's young. So, so Lydia was an active businesswoman at the top of her career. And she was uh, between, what, uh, 25, uh, 40 years old? And uh, the slave girl, she was probably a teenager. So there we have two different generations. And the passage uh, does not reference where the slave girl is from. You know, slaves could be from anywhere. But uh, I think it would be a fair guess to say that she was from that region. She she was from the region of of Macedonia. She was Greek. So uh, Lydia was an immigrant from Thyatira, and the slave girl was Greek. And while Lydia was uh, moral and spiritual, the slave girl, she, she wasn't just irreligious. She was demon-possessed. I mean, that's, that's as far as in the other direction as you can go. Demon-possessed. And uh, not only did she have uh, demonic masters, she also had human masters. She was a slave. Which means that she was poor. Why? Because the verse that we just read says that, uh, that she brought much gain to her owners, So even the money that she made, it didn't go to her. It went to her masters. She was completely powerless, completely exploited, psychologically bound by demons, socially bound by human masters. Now, how did the gospel come into her life? Well, Luke never never refers explicitly to to her conversion or, or her baptism, but the fact that her story is told between the story of Lydia and between the story of the Roman jailer that we're going to see here in a bit, uh, it, it points to the fact that she also came to Christ. So how, how did the gospel come into her life? Uh, what did she need to receive the gospel? Verse 18, and this she kept doing, like saying that these guys are servants of the Most High God. This she kept doing for many days, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So what did she need to come to the, to the gospel? We read this verse and we say, well, what did she need? She, she needed a miracle. A miracle of sorts. An exorcism. Which is very true. She, she needed a miracle and that's what she got. But, but, I want to bring your attention to the fact that her miracle, the miracle of her spirit being cast out, is no bigger miracle than that of Lydia's. See, the Lord opened Lydia's eyes eyes, to understanding a scripture. he, He opened her heart. There was divine intervention. It was a miracle because we all need a miracle 
to come to Christ. We all need a miracle to understand the gospel. We all need divine intervention. So if we get uh, past the fact that we all need a miracle, what did this slave girl need to receive the gospel? While Lydia's miracle came through a rational discourse, the slave girl's miracle came through social action. Through social action. See, uh, Paul was annoyed, says here the verse, right? Uh, what was he annoyed about? Was he annoyed to listen to the same broken record again and again and again? Or was he, was he annoyed uh, by what she was saying? What, what was he annoyed about? Well, Luke actually does not tell us. See, our, our Western eyes, our Western worldview would bring us to read this verse and think, oh, he was annoyed, tired of listening to the same bracket all the time, right? And, and you know, after listening to uh, Rod's sermons uh, last week, week of how God uses imperfect people to advance his ministry and, and how Paul himself was imperfect, it, it is not hard to believe that Paul was fed up, right? And, uh, and that he was like, ass enough, shut up in the name of Jesus, right? Uh, so it's, that's not hard to believe. For, for me, at least, uh, uh, it is hard to believe that God would honor such a reaction. Now, I cannot put God in a box. As he's, he's higher than my understanding. There's nothing impossible to him, but it, this doesn't quite fit uh, in my mind. So uh, this is what I uh, think that happened. <clears throat> the Greek word for annoyed also carries the connotation of being deeply troubled, of being uh, deeply disrupted. Uh, the the King, uh, King James Version translated as, as grieved. He was grieved. He was grieved at what? And I think he was grieved at what he was seeing. See, the verse says that it took a couple of days for this to happen, and I think it, it is possible that it took uh, a few days to Paul to figure out what was going on. You know, he was like, wait a minute, you, you, you are possessed. <laughs> wait a minute, you, you, you are a slave, and these are your masters. Wait a minute, you are in this pitiful situation, and they're not helping you. They're actually taking advantage of your pitiful situation. And this is what annoyed Paul. This is what troubled him. And this is the situation he acted upon. She needed social action. She needed to be liberated psychologically, uh, physiologically. You know, her brain wasn't working properly. She was possessed. And psychologically, she wasn't in a place to receive a, a, a rational discourse. That, that would have done nothing. She needed a different approach. See, there, there was a, a different uh, dimension of her humanity that needed to be attended. Uh, because we're not merely intellectual, rational beings. We are also psychological, emotional ones. And we are physical beings as well. And God, through the gospel, he, he tends to all those needs. Because the, the gospel responds to all those needs. When the gospel comes at the center of your life, you can never look at the poor, you can never look at the outcast, you can never look at the oppressed in the same way again. You're disturbed, you're deeply troubled when you see them, and you're moved to action. You're moved to action. And therefore, any church that is being true to the gospel is just as involved in social justice issues as it is in the verbal proclamation of the gospel. 
See, verbal proclamation and social action, the one is not more important than the other. Um, uh, if we have one without the other, then the, the, the testimony of the gospel falls apart. They go together. It's not either or, it's both and. And see, she needed social action, and she was, she was liberated ac- across the board. I mean, she, she wasn't only liberated uh, uh, internally, personally, psychologically. She was also socially liberated. Why? Because when the demon was cast out, she no longer fed the, the old exploitative uh, economic system. Uh, look at verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them into the uh, the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. See, uh, when they saw that their hope of gain was gone, she no longer fit the exploitative system. Now, most likely she remained being enslaved, but there was change. Uh, She no longer fit. And her slave owners were like, Well, what am I going to do with you? You know? And I can't help to wonder if, if Lydia uh, came and said, you don't want her, I want her. <laughs> Just a thought, man. it's not here. And, and of course, uh, the people who were making money off of her, uh, they were furious. Furious. See, they, they saw this flashy miracle. Did, did, they, did they come barreling down into repentance? No, they were furious. So miracles, flashy miracles, they don't always bring people to, to Christ. Um, and why they were furious? Because, because Paul and Silas were doing, what they were doing was social action. They were upsetting the unjust social system. See, in, in seeking to advance the kingdom of God through the gospel, they were confronting the unjust social structures. The gospel for the oppressed. The slave girl got it. How did she get in? Through social action. Now, Because of their social action, Paul and Silas were thrown into jail. And this brings us to the story of the Roman jailer. Verse 23, And when they had inflicted many many blows upon them, they they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in their stocks. Roman jailer. What do we know about him from this uh, uh, verses? Well, first of all, and, and how was he different from Lydia and the slave girl? Well, the, the, the most obvious one is he was male. He was a man. Because men also come to Christ. It's not just women. And uh, so we know he was male, obviously. And secondly, he was Roman. How do we know that? It doesn't say here. But, well, uh, from history, we know that, uh, you know, the emperor of this time was Claudius. Well, his father, Octavius, when he took hold of the city in 31 BC, he designated Philippi as a Roman colony, and he decided to, uh, to populate that city with retiring Roman soldiers. So he most likely would have been sold, uh, uh, Roman, uh, Roman. And uh, being a retired soldier, he most likely was older than Lydia, yet another generation. And, uh, you know, it was a given that in a, in a Roman colony like Philippi, uh, all civ- civil service jobs, like that of a jailer, uh, they were given to Roman soldiers. Why? Because they were good jobs. There you go. So he's, he's, uh, he's Roman. He's male. He's, uh, uh, what else? He's Roman. And, uh, you know, he wasn't raking in money like Lydia, but he wasn't dispossessed like the slave girl. 
He was just a regular blue-collar guy, middle class. Um, and his, so his life wasn't a success like Lydia's, nor a mess like the slave girl's life. He was a content guy. And uh, he's not spiritually seeking like Lydia, but, uh, and he's not, he's not in need of social action like the slave girl. So he's, a, he's the least spiritual of all three. Or you could say that he's, he's the secular one. Um, so how does the gospel come to him? Being a content guy, not being in a spiritual quest, he couldn't care less about a rational discourse, right? And he didn't need social action. So how did the gospel, you know, he had a good job, no worries, his needs were met. So how did the gospel come to him? This is how he came to, uh, the, the gospel came to him. It was by seeing the way that Paul and Silas handled pain and suffering. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. See, they, they, were, they were singing and praying. Now, someone could tell me, uh, well, okay, uh, Hernan, or whatever your name is, you, at the beginning of your sermon, you mentioned that the gospel does not keep Christians from suffering. And here they are. They are, they are suffering. You were right. But you also mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that the gospel doesn't keep Christians from groaning and lamenting either. Yet, here it is, Paul and Silas in a very painful situation, and they are singing. So what do you make of that? And I would tell, I would tell to you what makes you think that they were singing happy songs. What makes you think that they were praying happy prayers? Most likely, they were, they were processing uh, their painful situation uh, with the Lord. Why do I think that? Well, Paul was great, but Jesus himself, Jesus himself, the day that he was going to be arrested, I, I don't recall him dancing in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't recall him uh, praying happy prayers. Even though he knew that he was going to be resurrected and glorified, he was sweating blood. And even before that, uh, when, when Lazarus died, what did he do? He didn't went in saying, oh, calm down, people, look at this. No, he wept. He mourned. Because lamenting, groaning, uh, grieving, they are all faithful responses to pain and suffering. So I believe that their songs and their prayers sounded a lot more uh, like the uh, Lamentations, the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. Uh, where the author spends uh, about 20 verses saying things like this, uh, Lord, you have crushed me. Lord, you have made me eat dirt. You have ripped me up like a bear would rip up his prey. You have torn me to pieces. But though you cause grief, you will not cast forever. Your love never ceases. And my hope is in you. And I see the, the prisoners that were there with, with Paul and Silas saying, hope. Hope, you say? How can you possibly have hope in a situation like this? How can you possibly handle, handle suffering like this? And the answer is the resurrection. The resurrection that the gospel proclaims. See, the resurrection is what enabled Paul and Silas to, ha to handle 
pain and suffering like this. Because this life might be painful, this life, but, but this life is not everything that, it, that there is to it, is it? Resurrection says that I will not suffer forever. Maybe I will suffer for the rest of this life, but not forever. My body aches now. My body is marred now, but I will get my body back, and, I will, and it will be a glorified body because the resurrection tells me that my future is a physical future. And my future is what I see in the glorified body of the resurrected Jesus Christ. See, they handled pain in a way that it also allowed them to repay the evil of the Roman jailer with good. See, when the Roman jailer uh, received Paul and Silas, uh, their backs were lacerated. Uh, They were all beaten up. They were dripping with blood. And instead of washing their wounds, which is what he should have done, and what he did when he, comes, uh, when he came to Christ, uh, instead of doing that, he confines them to the stocks, which is the last place you want to be when you are all sword, all beaten up, and, and dripping with blood. Why? Because it's, uh, you know, uh, your legs are pulled way apart to make sure that you are in the most uncomfortable position possible. The Roman jailer shows no concern for them. He, he was calloused. But then, verse 26, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were conveniently shaken and immediately all the doors were conveniently open. See, the, 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 the building does not fall apart, but just the, the doors are open. And uh, everyone's bonds are conveniently unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, did he, came, did he come uh, barreling down into repentance? No. He wanted to kill himself. See, another flashy miracle that doesn't make someone come to Christ right away, right? He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Why did he want to kill himself? Because back, there, uh, back then, the Roman law was that if you were a guard and a prisoner escaped, you were executed. So, in his mind, the only way to avoid public humiliation was to kill himself. Now, if Paul and Silas uh, uh, hadn't handled pain and suffering the way they did in the power of the resurrection, uh, they would have simply escaped. After all, they, they didn't deserve to be there, right? But this is what the power of the resurrection uh, does to you. Uh, um, not only does it give you hope in the midst of pain and grieving and suffering, it also drives you to otherworldly compassion. Otherworldly compassion. Why? Because resurrection not only tells us that I'm going to get a new body and oh, how wonderful that is for me. No. Resurrection also tells us that we will not be redeemed into some nebulous uh, neverland place uh, away from the world. No. It tells us that we're going to be redeemed to a redeemed world. Our future is physical, and therefore, this world matters, and we fight for it. And the resurrection also gives us the power to give ourselves away. You know, uh, um, oftentimes it's hard for us to sacrifice because we don't, you know, it's like, I want to do that, but I don't want to, 
I, 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 wanna, I also want to see the world, and I want to experience all these things, and, 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 and it's hard for us to sacrifice. But the, 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 the resurrection of the gospel tells us, you're not going to miss out. You are going to get a new body, and you're going to enjoy it in a redeemed world, which is way better than this one. And I think you will have enough time to enjoy all you want to enjoy because, you know, you, you'll have eternity. I think that's about enough time to, to enjoy it all you want. So no regrets. You can give yourself away now and fight for this world because resurrection says that this material world matters. And see, because of the power of the resurrection, Paul and Silas handled pain and suffering in a different way. They knew that they didn't deserve to be in jail, but they also knew that if they escaped... They escaped at the cost of the jailer's life. So what did they do? Verse 28. But, but Paul cried, when he sees that he's going to kill himself, Paul, Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. So he manages to, to keep all the other prisoners there as well. Um, and the jailer called for legs and, and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. See, in the power of the gospel, Paul and Silas said, it is our life or the life of the jailer. We choose the life of the jailer. It is our freedom or the freedom of the slave girl. We choose the freedom of the, of the slave girl. No regrets. They give themselves away. And the jailer has never seen anything like that. The gospel, the gospel for the secular. The Roman jailer got it. How did he get it? You don't tell the gospel to someone who doesn't give a rip about the gospel. You show it to him. You show it to him. And one of the ways in which you show the gospel uh, to someone that, that does not give a rip is by the way that you handle pain and suffering. See how the gospel appeals to all people? I mean, it'd be hard to imagine a more dissimilar group than the businesswoman, the slave, and the jailer. See, racially, socially, psychologically, spiritually, generationally, they, they are worlds apart. Worlds apart. And yet the same gospel, the same gospel, appeals to all of them. And not only does it appeal to all of them, it unites them. It unites them. They, they, you, you don't see Paul saying, okay, now over here is, uh, are going to meet the, the, the people who were with a religious background, and over here the people who are uh, mentally rehabilitated, and over here people that you know, uh, don't have religious background and want something more upbeat or whatever. No, it, it unites them. It brings them together. There is no greater unifying factor in the face of the earth than this. See, uh, there was an ancient and very famous uh, prayer. You, you, you might have heard of it. It was a, a Jewish prayer that Jewish men uh, often prayed first thing in the morning. And the prayer went like this. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you so much. Because you didn't make me what? You didn't make me a woman. You didn't make me a slave. And you didn't make me a Gentile. And here is Paul, who as a Pharisee would have gone up for days and days on end to pray this very same prayer. 
And three of the first conversions in his new church in Philippi were a slave, a woman, and a Gentile. And now they are his family. They are his family. A gospel for all people. There is no greater unifying factor in the face of the earth than this. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you so much uh, for your gospel. Um, Thank you because your gospel knows no region, no nationality, no culture, no race, no generation. Thank you because your gospel unites it all. You, and thank you because you reach out to us and meet us where we are in life, and you miraculously intervene, giving us what we need to, in order to receive the gospel. We pray, Father, that you may continue to intervene here in Boise in the Treasure Valley, and that you may empower us and use us to advance your gospel on earth. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.